You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hey. Well, this is a small and lovely crowd. <laughs> you guys are like thick in here. I heard there's overflow and everything. Get excited. We're about to have a great conversation. Y'all are so quiet. Hey, Chessa. Good to see you. What's going on? I'm glad to be here. Although last time I saw you, I think there was a beautiful plate of some kind of avocado toast in front of you. I was very jealous. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking around. All I see is water. So, you know. <laughs> It's true. It's true. We'll talk about that really expensive avocado toast that I ate. But before we do, let me do the introduction so that the folks who are joining us on the live stream and uh, on radio can join our conversation. So we'll start again, shall we? <clears throat> Hello and welcome to tonight's program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Alicia Garza, principal of the Black Futures Lab and co-founder of the Black Lives Matter Global Network. And tonight, I am really pleased to be in conversation with San Francisco's district attorney, Chessa Boudin. Hey! <laughs> Thanks for helping me welcome him tonight. Um, we are going to have a conversation for about 60 minutes. We're going to go all kinds of places. You are also going to get to submit your questions. So if something is um, burning and you just have to ask it, there'll be folks walking up and down with cards and feel free to submit your questions. Don't get mad if I don't ask them, but we'll try. Okay. I'm also giving lots of love to my folks from the Young Women's Freedom Center. Where y'all at? <laughs> Represent. Hey. Uh, which is an incredible organization that is regional now. Y'all aren't just in San Francisco. Y'all all over the place. Um, fighting for justice for young people and making sure uh, that young people get kept out of prisons and jails. True? Let's do it. Word? Y'all ready to get into it? Yeah. Okay. So, Chessa, we have a lot to talk about tonight. Um, you just won a campaign that I would 100% call an uphill battle. You were running against um, an incumbent, right, at the very last minute, <laughs> and someone who was incredibly well-funded and well-backed and well-connected. Um, tell me about what, what was the secret? How did you push the boulder over the mountain? What was the secret to your campaign that helped you to win? My wife. Hey. <laughs> Oh, uh, I say that it's, you know, everybody laughs and it's, it is sweet, but it's, it's really true. And I think um, the other campaigns didn't realize that they weren't taking me on. They were taking us on. <laughs> and uh, the work that she put in on top of her full time job, helping organize all of our fundraising events, being with me at bus stops, uh, early mornings, handing out literature, keeping me going uh, through difficult debates. I think she came to 30 of the 33 debates. Hey. Um, Those are good it made, odds. It made a big difference. Yeah, excellent. Um, tell me what else. What else was the secret to your campaign? I mean, I know campaigns in San Francisco um, are fascinating. <laughs> and they're fascinating in the sense that uh, there is really like a usual group of suspects that will line up behind you. But you did not have that in this case. Um, just to be fully honest, as somebody who's worked and organized in San Francisco for quite a long time, you did not have the usual suspects behind you, but you still won. What was the secret? No, I mean, for a little, for a little more context than what you're saying, it's absolutely right. I was the last candidate in the race. Mm -hmm. When I got in, um, one of the other candidates already had over $160,000 in the bank, had already lined up endorsements from, as you said, the usual suspects and way beyond that, yep. um, folks with national profiles. Yep. So it was an uphill battle. And I think there's this false narrative right now about being electable. We hear a lot in the presidential campaigns about, you know, who's electable? What does it mean to be electable? And one of the things that we decided really early on in my campaign was that I was going to be me. Whether that was electable or not would be up to the voters. Mm -hmm. And it meant that I was very concrete, very specific, and very honest about what I wanted to do, mm -hmm. about why I was running, and what I hoped to achieve if I won. Mm -hmm. I was consistently the furthest left candidate in the race. And 
a lot of other folks say, well, you know, this is not going to work. You're, you know, certain the POA is going to spend money again. They spent $700,000 attacking me in a 10 day period at the end of the race. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. That's as much as we spent the whole year on our campaign. Um, and folks were right about the attacks, but what voters wanted, I believe the reason that I won is they wanted someone who was honest and genuine and committed Mm -hmm. to transformative criminal justice change. Mm -hmm. And that's what I talked about every day of the campaign. And it's what I'm talking about every day now that I'm in office. Well, I was really proud to have endorsed you. Um, and I will tell the audience just for full disclosure, I was like, I'm not meeting with that guy. I don't know who he is. Um, I'm not really interested in this. And, you know, I got a lot of phone calls, a lot of texts um, from you and <laughs> from uncles and aunties and people whose feet I have sat at and people who I've been smacked upside the head by. And they were like, hey, look, just meet with him. And I was really, really impressed. What struck me uh, most about you, uh, besides the fact that you're a really nice guy, is that um, you had a vision beyond slogans for how to actually intervene in systems. And just to give you all a sense of what I mean by that, I'm, I'm somebody who's done organizing work around economic justice, racial justice, and those are all big fancy words for how do we actually achieve the promise of America? How do we achieve the promise of San Francisco where we can live in a city and in a country where everyone gets to pursue their dreams and be exactly who they are and be celebrated for it? And I will be honest with you, in election seasons, we hear a lot of slogans and rhetoric. I'm going to fight for criminal justice reform. Well, what does that mean? Right. And Tessa, you were really uh, prolific, I think, in being able to get very specific about what the interventions were that you plan to make in order to ensure that people who look like me and people who've had experiences like my uncles and my aunties and folks who grew up here and got pushed out of here, uh, you painted a picture for me of how you could have changed their lives if you were the district attorney when they were coming up in this city. So that's why I got behind you. And then I got really excited when I saw John Legend be like, I'm for that guy. That was awesome. I got excited too. (laughs) I shed a tear. I was like, this is amazing. But with that being said, I would like you to share with the audience your vision for how you plan to transform the criminal system in this city. Uh, We we, want to have your back and we want to support you. And so we need to know how. So talk to us a little bit about your vision and what kinds of interventions you think are necessary in this city to make it a city for everyone. So I, I appreciate the question. It's a big question. I want to take a minute before I get to the heart of your question and go back to some of what you said in, in, in the preface to this, this question uh, about the Young Women's Freedom Center and some, some other groups, you know, that I think um, are really important to remember for me personally and then more broadly as an answer to your question. Mm-hmm. One of the first meetings that I had when I was about to run was with folks at the Young Women's Freedom Center in their office. And I went over there and I started talking about what my vision was and, and listening to them about what their vision was. I did that for a couple of reasons, right? One is obviously they do amazing work and, and they're leaders in the space and we need to uplift them and we need to follow their lead. Give it up for the Young Women's Give Freedom Center. But, but I did it for a couple other, of other reasons that are important to think about here. So, so one is social change, historic transitions and policy and, and culture are often remembered for, you know, individual people, yep. Right. Who, who make a difference, who get elected to office or for a Supreme Court decision mm-hmm. or for a massive record-breaking protest on Washington. Mm-hmm. But those moments that get written up in the history books and on the front page of the New York Times are not what actually bring about the change that we're fighting for. That's right. It's organizations and members of groups like the Young Women's Freedom Center that are on the front lines, coming up with the ideas, doing the work day in, day out, and all too often they get ignored and they get written out of the history and they don't get the credit that they deserve. So one reason why I started my campaign with meetings with groups just like them was, was, was that desire to follow their lead. But the other one is the other side of the coin, which is I knew that what I'm setting out to do, what I'm embarking on, I knew it then and I know it even more now that I'm in office, mm-hmm. is really difficult. Mm-hmm. The changes that I want to bring about, no matter how easy it is for me to sit here and talk in a moment, which I'll do, about what my vision for change is, having the ideas is only one small part of the process. There are 
deeply entrenched forces that will resist every single one of the changes that I talked with the leaders of the Young Women's Freedom Center about that day a year ago. And if I want to have a chance, just a chance at accomplishing the goals I was elected to achieve, I can't do it alone. I cannot do it alone. I need to be held accountable by people who have the lived experience, by people who are coming up with the ideas, by people who are going to be directly impacted by the policies I put in place. If I walk away from the campaign and say, well, now I've won, I'm going to do what I do, and I'm just going to work with my executive team in my office, and you know, you can keep doing your thing over there, I'll never accomplish anything. Mm-hmm. And I was specific and detailed in the campaign precisely so that the grassroots groups that supported me or some that didn't can hold me accountable to what I committed to do. And I'm counting on them um, to make sure that I'm able to fulfill the promises that that I set out to achieve. Mm -hmm. So what are some of those promises? What is that vision? Right now, we have a criminal justice system that's really, really good at punishing people. It's really bad at healing the harm that crime causes, and it's really bad at preventing future crime. In fact, it perpetuate cycles of crime. I know that because I grew up visiting my own parents in prison. I've been impacted my whole life. I saw so many of my friends whose parents were incarcerated end up in prison themselves. People who didn't have to end up in prison, people who with the right supports and opportunities would have been on this stage in my seat. I was on the phone with one of them earlier today. He, He was deported actually because of things that were totally preventable. And so I was talking with him earlier today. He's in Trinidad now. Um, it didn't have to happen that way. Mm-hmm. Had we as a society been more creative and more humane in the way we chose to respond to the harm that he caused, he would still be in this country and he'd be making massive contributions to his community. Mm-hmm. So I saw that growing up and I always thought about how it didn't make sense in my own, my own case, the case, my parents, the crime they committed where three people died and other people were seriously injured and harmed didn't make sense that the state was willing to destroy my family because of something my parents did. And they did it. They're not innocent. This is not about them being wrongly convicted. This is about what do we do with people who actually commit crimes? There were virtually no resources to support the victims of that crime. And instead, the, the limitless money that the state was willing to spend on punishing my parents. My dad's now 75 years old. He's been in prison since 1981. Oh, that's the year I was born, just to give some context. Right. A lifetime. Mm-hmm. He's been in prison for literally My a lifetime. entire life. Right. Yes. And there is no limit to how much the state will spend to punish him. If he lives a thousand years, they probably will keep him in that whole time. Mm-hmm. Notwithstanding the fact that he doesn't have a single disciplinary violation in his 37 years in, that he's done life-saving AIDS education work in prison, all that aside. And where are the resources to heal the harm that the victims suffered? Where are the resources to make sure that people who get out of prison or jail don't end up in the same cycle of crime and violence and punishment that led to the harm in the first place, right? So many of the people that my office prosecutes every day are people who were themselves victims, Mm -hmm. who we collectively failed to protect. Mm -hmm. And we see the way that cycle plays out for individuals and for families and for generations and communities. And we need to have more effective, more humane ways to intervene and break that cycle or we'll never be safe. Mm -hmm. So, all right, let's break this down, though, because um, I think that there are people who are listening right now who are saying that sounds like a pipe dream. That's all great and fine. But um, if somebody uh, causes harm to someone I love, I want them to rot and I don't care what happens to them. And I don't think that we should have anything humane happen to them because they weren't humane. What does that cycle do? And why are you so adamant that there needs to be some level of wraparound that intervenes in the, not just the harm that is possible, right? But the restoration that could happen if we were to look at the criminal system in a different way. So I want to I want to tell you a couple stories because it's something I've lived my whole life thinking about. Um, when when my parents first got arrested, I was I was indirectly a victim of what they did. Mm-hmm. I lost my parents. Mm-hmm. 
my life was, I was a year old. I was at the babysitter. They never came back to get me. And although I don't remember it, I stopped talking. The few words I was using at the age of 14 months, I just, I just stopped. Um, I developed a whole array of symptoms of trauma that the family that adopted me had to deal with and grapple with symptoms that are really common amongst other children with incarcerated parents. And I was angry. I was really angry and I was ashamed. There was stigma. I blamed myself. I was lucky in that my family was able to send me to a, to a therapist as a kid. And I would say things to the therapist, like if only I could have talked, I would have told them not to go as though somehow it were my fault at, at 14 months old for, for not telling my parents, don't do this. And I was angry at them for choosing whatever it was that led them to participate in that crime over their son. As though if I'd been more lovable, maybe they wouldn't have risked losing me. To work through those feelings, the, the complex mix of anger and shame and guilt that so many victims of crime feel took time. It took support. It took recognizing for me, it took recognizing that my parents were far more than their worst mistake. Mm -hmm. It took the opportunity to get to know who they were. And it took learning to forgive not only myself, I didn't, didn't, shouldn't have had to forgive myself, but I did mm -hmm. as many victims do. And also forgiving them. Once I did that, once I learned to forgive, I found a level of closure in my own life that allowed me to put the problems in school, the behavioral problems behind me. That's when I started getting the straight A's. That's when I earned a place in an Ivy League school. That's how I ended up on this stage. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Over the course of the last five weeks, one of the things I've done as the district attorney mm -hmm. is I've met with the family members of every single homicide victim in San Francisco that's asked to meet with us. Mm. Not just new homicides. Luckily, there aren't a lot of them. Mm -hmm. But even old ones, many years old. If they want to meet, we sit down and we meet. And I'm lucky to have the support of an amazing victim services unit, amazing victim witness advocates, mm -hmm. who some of whom are here today, who help facilitate those meetings and who provide the services before and after for the families of homicide victims. I don't think anything could have prepared me for how challenging those conversations are. They're all different. Every family is in a different space. Every case has different challenges from a legal standpoint, evidentiary standpoint. But one of the things that is really consistent and that I've learned over the course of these meetings is that the families want something that my office can never give them. They want their son back. Mm -hmm. They want their daughter not to have been killed. Mm -hmm. That is not something that I or any district attorney can do. Mm -hmm. But we have a culture of teaching victims that they should demand retaliation and retribution. Mm -hmm. That justice is the same as having the person who caused them harm to rot in prison for the rest of their life. We need accountability. We need consequences. We need deterrence. But that is not the same, certainly not in every case, as justice. Mm -hmm. What we forget and what we're so bad at doing and what we're trying to get better at doing in my office is finding ways to heal the harm. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter whether we seek the death penalty. You can, you can look at the data. You can look at empirical studies. You can look at interviews with crime victims in states where they regularly seek and obtain the death penalty. That does not provide closure. It does not provide healing. It does not provide space for people to move on with their lives. And it doesn't prevent crime. That's right. Okay. Y'all here? Yeah. All right. So, <clears throat> um, so you got elected. People got behind you. Shout out to uh, San Francisco Rising Action Fund. Yeah, Anybody give it up for that? San Francisco Rising. Okay. Action Fund. And, um, <laughs> you know, I don't know, maybe it was the day after the election, you know, I'm, I scroll my social media to get my news and I see Chessa came out swinging. I'm like, dang, people got fired. 
you just came in there like, okay, it's time to clear house. Can you talk to me about that? What happened? You came in and you said, all right, a lot of stuff's got to change. So people lost their jobs. Um, and then you made some big announcements about what the district attorney's office was going to do and what you weren't going to do. Yeah. So talk to us about that. So, yeah, it was a few days after I took office. We made some personnel changes. Um, I want to put them in context. Please. We have about 300 staff in the office. Mm -hmm. We have over 100 lawyers. Mm -hmm. I was a newly elected official who ran on a very transparent platform committed to systemic change. That's why I was elected. Mm -hmm. This wasn't something that we pretended we were going to stick with the status quo. I was elected precisely because I promised the most radical vision for change of any of the candidates. Uh-huh. Now, I want everybody to imagine, everybody in this room imagine, we're all following the presidential race, right? You all have the candidate that you're favoring. You all hope that they win. But you're all going to vote no matter what, right? All right. So, so I want you to imagine with all the Democratic candidates we have, just imagine for a moment that any one of those candidates win. I don't care if you're for Mayor Pete, former Mayor Pete. I don't care if you're for Bernie Sanders, as I am. Um, I don't care if you're for um, Elizabeth Warren, who's also amazing. There's great candidates out there. Imagine that your candidate wins. Do you expect them, realistically, to keep a single one of Trump's cabinet in place? <laughs> Would you be angry at them if they did? Yes. <laughs> so what we did, what we did with... <laughs> with releasing from employment seven attorneys out of more than 100 mm -hmm. was precise, restrained, narrow, and it wasn't fun, even as limited as it was. Mm -hmm. It was one of the more difficult things I've had to do on the job because I value the people who work in my office and the years of service that they put in, so much so mm. that every single day I hand-deliver a handwritten note mm -hmm. to every single employee, not just lawyers, mm -hmm. on the anniversary of their hire date, mm -hmm. thanking them for whether it's one year or 35 years of service. We value the people who work in our office, mm -hmm. and we want them to be part of the vision that San Franciscans have for how we're going to keep our city safe. But to make the change that voters demanded, we have to make changes. Mm. And that's what we're in the process of doing. Mm. Well, can we... Give it up for that. Y'all so quiet. All right, so let's get into it, because some people might say I'm soft pitching you, so let's let's go. Bring it. Okay. You like how I just did that? <laughs> okay, so um <clears throat> you know, so I, I I'm a big fan. And um Talk not... more talk more about that. Okay. All right. <laughs> Before you get to the other question, talk yeah, more about that. I'm going to. I'm going to. So um, I do think it's important that we have a district attorney. And just so people know what district attorneys do and what district attorneys don't do, um, the role of the district attorney, right, is, as I understand it, really to set the tone, right, for how it is that we deal with harm in a city. Okay? Um the other way that I understand the role of district attorneys is that district attorneys also set the tone and the context for um, what is considered harmful or a crime, right? Um, and also sets the tone for um, how it is that we deal with harm in a place. So uh, there are there's this thing that people have been talking about over the last decade, right? Progressive prosecutors. I'm not going to do all that, but there are people like you across the country who uh, folks have worked really hard to get elected um, to have a different approach to how we deal with the criminal system and how we actually get it to be a justice system. You'll notice that I said criminal system. It didn't say criminal justice system because right now the criminal system does not enact justice. Yeah. But we want to get to a place where we can deal with harm in such a way where we intervene in it. Right. But that we also wrap supports around, um, all people who have been impacted by harm, people who cause harm. Right. And all of us have caused harm by the way, <laughs> and people who are impacted by harm and the goal, I think, of a criminal justice system 
is to restore bonds that were broken because harm was caused. I'm with you. Great. Um, but that's not an easy task. So I, I know Kim Fox, for example, who uh, was elected uh, in, in the state of Illinois. Uh, she's under fire, right? Not just for the sensational cases that you see, but she's under fire because she's actually trying to make changes around um, how police are being held accountable when they commit crimes. Uh, she's trying to make changes around uh, things that are overly prosecuted, like drug crimes that don't actually cause harm. Right. Um, we live in a bubble here in San Francisco, folks. You can like buy weed and it's fine. <laughs> that doesn't actually happen in other places around the country. Um, people like Larry Krasner, right, who are also under fire at any given day because he's daring, right, with a whole coalition of people to change the way that the criminal system functions. Um, and so that is how I, that's why I like you. Cause I think you have a vision for how to make San Francisco, San Francisco again. And you're right. We do have to hold you accountable and we plan to, Good. am I right? Okay. Thank, yes. thank you. Thank you in advance. So with that, we've got questions about kind of what is your plan to transform the criminal system in this city into a criminal justice system. So let's start with some of the new policies that you um, are moving. One is a caregiver diversion program, and I want to hear all about that. And the other one is uh, a start to ending cash bail, right? Yeah. Talk about what that means and why that's important and um, how that's going to change people's lives here in the city. Great. So just, yeah, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of misconceptions about what district attorneys do and don't do. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, the folks who work in my office for the most part are not social workers. They're not mental health professionals. Mostly they're lawyers. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have a budget. You know, the, the, the Department of Public Health in San Francisco has a budget in the neighborhood of $2 billion. $2 billion? Our office, including all of the grants that we get from outside agencies, um, is in the neighborhood of $74 million. So there's a lot of things we don't and can't do and can't be expected to do, right? Um, and you but, haven't gotten any calls from Bloomberg? Not yet. Not yet. No, I'm, yeah, yeah, I don't even uh, get to check my phone. It's on silent, so maybe, maybe I'll miss that. I might have missed the call. I, I haven't gotten my check. I haven't gotten my Ivy Park box. I, right. I feel like I'm behind. A lot of things. A lot of okay. things. We can hope. We can hope. <laughs> okay. We'll come back to that. So, so I, I say that because I think it's important to remember that for far too long, the criminal justice system and the DA's office has been used as a dumping ground for all social problems. Mm -hmm. When we, you know, systematically dismantle our public health response to mental illness mm -hmm. under the Reagan administration, um, when we dismantle the social welfare safety net under the Clinton administration, um, when we continue that trend, you know, under different local, state, federal regimes, mm -hmm. the problems that ensue end up on my desk mm -hmm. and we don't have the resources or the technical skill to solve those problems. So 75% of the people booked into San Francisco County jail are drug addicted, mentally ill or both, mm. but we're not the ones with the resources or the skills or the programs or the bed space to provide interventions that are going to ensure that those people don't get rearrested again when they get released. So wait a minute. So <laughs> this is a question we got to, so I'll just insert it in here. So does that mean that as a district attorney, you can't do anything about human feces on the street? Sorry to say, the best I can do about it is to use whatever platform I have here in front of all of you on Twitter to demand more public toilets. I think public toilets are a great solution to that problem. I, I, I'll tell you what's not a good solution is having police who could be investigating unsolved rapes and murders get distracted with paperwork to give citations to people who don't have anywhere to use the toilet in private, and then having those people in some cases get taken to jail at a cost of nearly $300 a night per person. $300 for some poop? Per night. That's a lot of money. Right. We That's could have public toilets for a lot. Right. You do the cost-benefit analysis. Let's have some public toilets, please. Please. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Okay. Um, does that also mean 
Because I, I saw this a lot. I saw this a lot. So I, I'm somebody who unfortunately reads the comments in every article. Huh. I just do. My sympathy. It's like the wasteland of human dignity. Um, <laughs> kind of like airports. You know what I mean? Um, but I saw a lot of comments about people being upset about property crimes. So things like getting your window broken uh, in your car. Um, things like robbery. Right. Petty theft, uh, things like getting your laptop stolen out of a coffee shop that you left on the table and you know you shouldn't have left your damn laptop on the table. Um, what is the district attorney's role in dealing with property crimes? So I want to talk about that. I want to make sure I answer the prior question. Thank I don't you. want to dodge it. And I'm yep. going to come back to that. So yep. just really quickly, the. One of the things I'm most excited about we've been able to do so far, you mentioned in your previous question before we started talking about poop, which was um, <laughs> I always like to talk about poop. the diversion program for primary caregiver parents. Yep. It's a policy and a program that's near and dear to my heart because of my own life experience. And it's based on a really simple premise that we can all understand. We are safer when parents are at home with their kids than when they're in a cage. Yep. And so the idea is let's take nonviolent crimes and let's find ways to get the people who are accused of those crimes out of jail and back on track to play the role we need them to play in their families and in their communities. And let's give them the tools and the support and the supervision to get there. And if they do, let's make sure that we're not preventing them from holding down a job in the future. Mm -hmm. um, thank you. Thank you. There, there are a lot of kids I grew up with who are now in prison or have spent time in prison or jail mm -hmm. who wouldn't have been there if that program had existed when we were growing up. So I know it's not just about doing something good for the person accused. It's not just about doing something good for their kid. Mm -hmm. It's about preventing their being future victims of future crimes. Um, the bail thing, again, really simple. We could talk about it all night. I've spent years fighting to end money bail for a really simple reason. Mm -hmm. We are safer and juster when pretrial detention is based on risk, not on wealth. Mm. That's why one of the first things I did was tell my assistant district attorneys, thank you, mm. Mm. that we will never put a price tag on freedom. If we believe someone is too dangerous to be released, no matter what conditions, then we should ask the judge to hold them, regardless of how much money they have in the bank. Mm -hmm. And if, on the other hand, we believe there are conditions that allow the person to be safely released while they're presumed innocent by the U.S. Constitution, mm -hmm. then we should ask for those conditions, and they should have nothing to do with wealth. Um, when it comes to property crime, which does have to do with wealth. Because mm -hmm. I, I got eight questions right. about property crime. Right. It's a big issue. Bicycles, broken windows. <sighs> right. There's, right. The, the, purses. Right. I heard purses, wallets. So let me talk about some things we can do and some things we should not do. You mentioned laptops. I was in a, a coffee shop about two months ago after the election, before I took office, mm -hmm. having a meeting with some community leaders. And middle of the afternoon, beautiful day, lots of people enjoying the sunshine in and outside of the coffee shop, community coffee shop, one of my favorite spots. And someone ran in, grabbed a laptop that someone was in the middle of typing on. They hadn't even left it to go to the bathroom. They mm -hmm. were literally like in the middle of an email. Mm -hmm. Grab it, and they're out the door. Mm -hmm. The person who took the laptop tripped and fell. Mm. On the way out the door, oh. you know, they had one of those mats for the servers to like oh. wipe their shoes on, fell face forward. They were young and athletic and caught themselves on their elbows without oh. breaking the computer. I was sitting there in a, in a kind of dress like I am now with a bird's eye view of the whole thing at the counter. And without thinking, I want to emphasize without thinking, I jumped up and started running towards the door. This is what you should not do, by the way. So... This young man gets up before I get to him and starts running. And again, without thinking, I follow him out the door running. Well, he has a car waiting, as often is the case, to make his escape. Mm. And he gets to the car right... I'm a good runner. I'm, I used to be a better runner, but um, I almost catch him. And he dives into the backseat of the car. Now, instead of doing something useful from an investigative standpoint, like getting my phone out and taking a picture of the license plate, which I did not do, oh. which you should do, I jumped up and kicked the back window of his car out. Oh. So some people say I'm contributing to the broken windows problem in San Francisco. <laughs> but really what I'm trying to do is stop crime. 
and I'm encouraging all of you to get the license plate, not <laughs> potentially get injured. Or... So then what happened? <laughs> so then he got away, and it took 35 minutes before the police responded. Because they were dealing with poop? Well, hopefully not, but because the reality is, and, and this is an important point, right? And, you know, we are dealing with historically high levels of property crime in San Francisco. And we can talk about wealth inequality, and we can talk about the housing crisis, and we can talk about addiction and mental illness, all of which are part of the context in which we face these challenges. Uh-huh. But we need to also remember that we are asking the police to do an impossible job. Okay. And we are failing because we are looking at these problems solely through a criminal justice lens. So let's take auto burglaries. At peak in 2017, there were 31,000 reported auto burglaries. That's just the report. I didn't report the one that happened to me that year. We know there were many more than that. Police made arrests in less than 2% of those cases. Less than 2%. So there are a lot of people, a lot of critics who say to me, Harsher punishment, more prosecution. What are you going to do about auto burglaries? And I say, even if we were giving the death penalty to people who commit auto burglaries in San Francisco, 99% of them are getting away with it. It is not an effective response to focus narrowly on harsher punishments when our law enforcement agencies are unable to respond to the volume for a variety of reasons. These are crimes of opportunity. People don't commit them when there's a police officer there. People are willing to take high risks to get away from the police. We have police officers getting injured, trying to make arrests. Uh, property crimes turn into violent crimes in that way. Um, our whole approach to dealing with these is not working. Mm. Now, I will say that there's progress being made. Um, the number of auto burglaries has fallen for two consecutive years. Um, the district attorney's office last year filed criminal charges in over 84% of the cases that the police brought us. So we are prosecuting cases when we have them, but that solution, relying on police to make arrests, relying on my office to prosecute and ask for ever harsher sentences, will never solve this problem. So what's going to solve it? So a couple things. We need to, uh, we have a three-pronged approach. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about all three prongs, right? One is education and prevention. Another is deterrence and detection. And the other is putting victims first. Mm. And because I believe in putting victims first always, I want to talk about that part of the approach first. We just announced it a couple days ago and it comes from a recognition that the police will not arrest the people who caused this harm, mm -hmm. who committed this crime in 99% of the cases. And this is not about blaming the police. These are difficult crimes for them to investigate. They're spread thin. They have other, they're getting called for mental health calls and overdoses all the time. So should we simply say in the 99% of cases where the police don't make an arrest, to the victim, sorry, there's nothing we can do for you. Tough luck. No, we shouldn't. And that's why my budget proposal includes the only significant ask I'm making is for my victim services unit. Mm. And it's to get a fund and victim advocates who can help people who've had their car windows broken fix the broken windows, regardless of whether the police make an arrest, regardless of whether we're able to file and prosecute a case. Put victims first. Let's heal the harm. Now, we announced that two days ago, and I'm surprised some people are out here saying, well, that's going to increase the number of auto burglaries. I'm like, really? How does paying victims restitution cause crime? Mm. How does putting victims first and remembering that even when we can't punish somebody, that justice still needs to be done? And it starts with fixing the broken windows. So that's something that I'm committed to doing. I'm hoping the rest of the city will join me in remembering that there are real victims of real crimes every day in San Francisco where there is no suspect who gets arrested and prosecuted. Mm -hmm. And yet we have an obligation to make them whole. Mm. Education. Mm -hmm. We live in a city, like most cities in America, with historic wealth inequalities. We have some of the richest people in the history of the world in this city. Mm -hmm. Fortunes never imaginable mm -hmm. 10 or 20 or 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. And we also have some of the poorest people. People living off scraps, living on the streets, sleeping on the sidewalk with not even a blanket. Mm -hmm. We've all seen that. We've all seen it more often than we'd like to see it. When we have those extremes in close proximity, there's going to be some level of property crime. Mm -hmm. That's a reality. And I'm not saying we're not going to prosecute. I'm not saying I don't care about it. What I'm saying is that is a reality of modern American urban life. We have technology that allows us to have anything we want delivered to our doorstep with 
24 hours notice. And we all work so hard that we're not usually home to pick up the packages. There are people who are going to take those packages sometimes. It's going to happen. And it's a crime. And we're going to prosecute it. But we want to do it in a way that's compassionate, that's humane, and that understands the root causes of that crime. And that gets at them. Because if we put someone in jail for stealing a package off my front steps Mm -hmm. for the maximum, which is usually going to be six months, and put them right back on the street, we've cost the city a lot of money. We've exposed someone to the sexual assault that occurs in jails, to the contagious diseases that are transmitted in jails. We haven't reimbursed me for the missing package. And we haven't set that person up to do anything other than go back to stealing packages when they get out. Mm. So as we work to make jails places that are more rehabilitative, I mean, right now, let's just, let's just use some numbers. I like numbers. I know Andrew Yang's out of the, the race, but he's got the math pen. I'm channeling a little math here, right? We got math. So right now, the state of California dedicates nearly 10% of our state budget. We're talking about billions of dollars to the Department of Corrections, right? Not jails, not my office, not local police. We're talking about just what happens on the back end after someone's been convicted and sent off to state prison. 10% of our state budget. You know what percentage of all that money goes to rehabilitation? Any guess? Zero. 3%. But probably the people who are saying zero are probably closer to the mark because a lot of that's going to overhead, administrative costs, right? I mean, we're not, we, we are not dealing with a system where when we send someone to prison, they get restored in a way that allows us to feel safe with them coming home. And yet 99.9% of the people who the police put into San Francisco County Jail will be released, right? Some tiny percentage will die in custody and all the rest of them will get out sooner or later. And we can talk about what a reasonable punishment is for someone who's stolen a package or someone who's done an armed robbery. We can talk about that. There's lots of room to have that conversation, but we need to always remember the victims and putting resources first and foremost towards healing the harm, fixing the broken windows, and to keeping ourselves safe in the long term, Mm. to keeping people who we are holding accountable safe while we are giving them the skills they need to come back and live amongst the rest of us. Mm -hmm. We're doing a terrible job on all of those fronts. And when you asked me in the beginning, what's my vision Mm -hmm. for a criminal justice system? It's a system that remembers victims Mm -hmm. and prioritizes healing the harm first. Mm -hmm. It's a system that recognizes the full human potential of every single person, no matter how bad the mistakes they've made, no matter how many mistakes they've made, and finds ways to ensure that when and if they come back to live with us, they're safe to do so. Mm-hmm. They have the skills and the, and, the, and the support they need to do so. Okay. We've talked about poop. <laughs> We've talked about property crimes. Um, I'm not going to answer any, I'm not going to ask any more questions okay. about property crimes. There was a lot of them, but I think your answer was very substantive. Let's talk about young people and let's talk about juvenile halls. Um, so there was a successful campaign in this city, uh, to commit to closing juvenile hall. That's exciting. I heard snaps and you can clap for that. Um, now we're, now we got to get it implemented and, uh, we've got a bunch of questions here about what you will do to make sure that juvenile hall doesn't become a place, right? Where young people are put because they don't have housing because they don't have access to services, right? Um, Juvenile hall is not the same as having safe and affordable housing. Juvenile hall is a place where we put people that we want to punish. And there are lots of people um, in juvenile halls, in prisons and in jails, right? Um, Who we are housing because we don't have other places to put them, not because necessarily, right? Um, They've committed harm. That means that they deserve to be there. So, Talk to me about your plan to make sure that young people are getting the support that they need and talk to me about your plan to ensure that young people are not being overcommitted to places like juvenile hall. So it's a, it's an amazing historic development that the board of supervisors voted thanks to leadership from so many folks in the community and young women's freedom center and other organizations to close juvenile hall. Mm -hmm. 
And that vote was a critical first step. But there's a lot of work that we have to do, and there's a lot of difficult steps that have to be taken mm-hmm. to get there mm-hmm. and to get there in a way that's consistent with our values and with public safety. Um, I grew up in, you know, with, with a mother who worked in the juvenile system in Chicago. She was a lawyer, and she did all of her work in the juvenile justice system, as you know. Mm-hmm. And we used to spend Thanksgivings many, many, many years going to the juvenile detention center and serving Thanksgiving dinner mm-hmm. to kids mm-hmm. who were spending their Thanksgiving day in a cage. Yep. And I would love to live in a city where no kid ever has to spend Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter or Passover or any other birthday mm-hmm. in a jail. Mm-hmm. I think we're well on our way. Juvenile Hall is close to empty. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right that many of the people who are there are there simply because we collectively have failed to build humane more cost-effective alternatives for them. We failed to support them in their homes with their families. We've, when their families have not been able to support them, either because of incarceration or addiction or poverty or any of the other things that lead families to fall apart, we failed to step up in meaningful ways. All that's true. It's also true that we have some young people, whether they be 16 or 17, whether they be 17 and a day away from their 18th birthday, right, who participate in really horrific acts of violence. That's right. And not just once. Mm -hmm. We can talk about how people who are young get to that place. We can talk about what we can do to prevent it, and we need to have that conversation. Uh, But we also need to recognize that there are some very serious crimes committed by people who we define correctly as kids. Mm -hmm. So the challenge is going forward, how do we close a jail? And for those of you who are wondering what it's like to be in juvenile hall, for those of you who are imagining a kinder, gentler jail, let me just say, one of the juvenile probation commissioners who's been a longtime advocate for juvenile justice reform um, in ver- with various different hats on, but who's currently on the Juvenile Probation Commission, Margaret Brodkin, wrote mm, a chilling... Yeah, give it up for Margaret yeah, Brodkin. Give it up for her. She, she, she decided when she was reappointed to the commission that she was going to spend a night in jail. I think she did something like 36 hours in juvenile detention. And then she wrote a description of what she experienced. It does not make you feel safe. It does not make you feel like we are treating kids like kids. It does not make you feel like this is an institution where we want to commit young, vulnerable people to ever, no matter what they've done. So the vision that I laid out over the course of the last year with help and input from folks who are here in this room, from folks in the community, was to build two small seven or eight person secure facilities that we can use to house folks who've done really serious crimes, but that look more like a home, the kind of homes that most of those kids never had, than the jail that we currently have for them. Um, But they're secure. We can protect those kids, and we can protect people that they might harm if they were on the street. And everybody else, we should have 24-7 options available, foster care, groups like Sunset Youth Services that are doing amazing work in the community, uplifting kids, empowering kids, working with families so that kids can stay in the communities that love them and that need them to thrive and survive. Um, Right now, for kids and for adults, there are very few places that they can be taken when they're in crisis 24-7 that will have space. And the jail is one of them. Until we have the opportunity to treat people with clinics instead of cages just as easily as we can take people to jail, mm-hmm. we're going to continue to have the same kinds of public safety problems that we all want to move past. Mm-hmm. And it starts with kids. Mm-hmm. We know with a great degree of specificity which young people are going to end up in juvenile detention, and which ones are going to go from there to adult cases. The fact that we know that but don't have the resources or the interventions necessary to prevent it is a disgrace. Mm. Okay. What about um, things that we would call victimless crimes? Um, There is such a thing as sex work that happens here in San Francisco. It happens all over the country. It happens all over the world. And... um, there is such a thing as consensual sex work. What is your plan and your strategy to make sure that people who engage in sex work consensually don't end up in prisons and jails? Prisons and jails. 
Let me let me talk for a moment about about victimless <laughs> crimes more broadly, and then I'll talk specifically about sex work. Uh-huh. When I talk about victimless crimes, I'm talking technically about crimes where no person is named in a charging document, in a legal uh-huh. document, as being the direct victim. Uh-huh. There's no person who could call our victim services unit and speak with a victim witness advocate and say, I was directly harmed in this way and I need your help. Uh-huh. A huge percentage of the crimes that we prosecute today fall into that category. They're technically yeah. victimless crimes. It doesn't mean that there are not people who are harmed by them or people who are exposed to risk or even trauma, uh-huh. right? So let's talk about drug sales uh-huh. in the Tenderloin, for example. Uh-huh. About 20% of my general felony caseload right now are drug sales cases. There's not a named victim in any of those cases. Mm-hmm. There's a community. Mm-hmm. There's a city. There are people who are harmed by the addiction crisis in this city, by open-air drug use and drug sales. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are technically victimless crimes. doesn't mean that there's not a community that's suffering because of mm-hmm. the way our city has forced drug use and drug sales into a very, very small area that's densely inhabited by families. Mm-hmm. So my approach to consensual sex work is to say, well, there are some people who may be offended by it and who may understandably not want it in their front yard or in their neighborhood. Um, It's not a good use of criminal justice resources. It's not a good use of police officer time to make arrests. And in fact, it makes us less safe. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk specifically about why criminalizing consensual adult sex work Mm -hmm. makes us less safe. Mm -hmm. We know that people engaged in sex work are unusually vulnerable. Mm -hmm. There's an entire industry, which is criminalized, pimping, pimping and pandering. Mm -hmm. There are high-frequency rapes, robberies, sexual assaults, kidnappings, domestic violence perpetrated against people who work in the sex work trade. And when we criminalize sex work itself, or even the so-called Johns who by sex and sex acts and intimacy, we create a black market that allows all the people who would commit those more serious crimes, the pimping and the domestic violence and the rape and the robbery, to thrive. Mm-hmm. We make it impossible for people engaged in sex work to come forward and report that they've been victims. Mm-hmm. Now, that's changing in San Francisco and in California thanks to new laws, um, which is really important and really good. Yep. But... We need to make it very clear, and I think my office already has, but we're going to continue to do that, that we will never prosecute someone criminally for engaging in a consensual sex act. This is important. We, we, like, we, we like consensual sex, right? And, <laughs> and, and, consensual and, if people, sex. and if people do it as part of a business, we can talk with the community that feels victimized by the presence of, of that trade in their neighborhood about just like with the drugs, we can talk about safe injection sites. We can talk about ways. And and frankly, that's how we make everybody safer, right? People are less likely to overdose and safe injection sites. They don't, it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. That's why they're called safe Mm -hmm. injection sites. Mm -hmm. People are less likely to get raped or robbed if they're engaging in sex acts um, in ways that are regulated and transparent and have the full protection of the rule of law rather than being pushed into dark corners and alleys. And so when we recognize the greater harms that we're causing, I think um, we can take a step back and say, this is not what public safety looks like. Mm. So <sighs> there's so many things that we have to talk about. And thank you for a thousand questions. Um You know, the thing that strikes me from all of your responses is that there's the symptoms of the problem that your office is having to deal with, and then there's the root cause of a problem. That's right. And as long as we're attacking symptoms and not root causes, we're really having to find creative ways to deal with symptoms, but not actually intervene in the problems. So, you know, being a... Uh, somebody who's born and raised in the Bay Area, and there's not many of us left, um, I can't help but be conscious of the fact that the reality is that wealth inequality in this city has increased in my lifetime. Um, There is unprecedented wealth in the city, and yet there are so many people who are sleeping on streets 
because they don't have shelters to go to and they certainly can't afford housing in the city. Um, there are so many people who are forced to literally scrape their dignity off of the cement while just half a block away, right? There's lavishness. And so I guess my appeal to this audience who um, is rightfully upset, I've had my car window broken a hundred million times. Um, there are glass, auto glass places that have made a lot of money off of me. And every time it happened, I mean, I literally have had so many things happen to me <laughs> in this city. But I, I will say that um, what strikes me every time is that in, a, in the wealthiest city, almost in the world, that it, it's unfathomable to, unfathomable to me that we can't figure out how to really address problems, right, at the root that would make our quality of life, all of our quality of life better. Um, if you don't like stepping over people who are sleeping on the streets, make sure there's affordable housing for people. Um, if you don't like seeing people sell sex, um, make sure that there are economic opportunities for people. Um, if you don't like young people committing crimes, right, make sure that schools are quality. Uh, make sure that there are places and supports for young people who um, whose families have failed them, quite frankly. Um, and make sure that we as San Franciscans become a community that takes care of each other. That's why people come to the city. That's what's attracted people to the city for generations. And it's slipping away. So um, symptoms, root causes, it seems pretty obvious to me. Let's dive into a couple of other things because we've got a few minutes left. There's really important questions I want to ask you. One of them is about <laughs> white collar crime, which also happens here in the city. Um, and certainly there's lots of questions here about corruption uh, in city government. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't not. I mean, we talked about windows, man. I'm like, let's talk about people who are taking bribes and selling contracts and, you know, all those things. What, what roles your office have in any of those things? What are we doing about people who are selling access to the highest bidder who well and do those departments have money because I, I feel like uh a lot of them do have a lot of money okay well what, what are a lot what more are than we, us we don't really we contract that? that's not what our agency does right you have other agencies in the city that are giving out hundreds of millions of dollars in grants and billions of dollars in contracts and so there are these opportunities for for corruption mm -hmm. um let me just take a step back we live in a moment in american history that we hope to be able to look back on and say this is a low point nationally, right? We hope that 5, 10, 15 years from now, we will look back on this moment and say that was an aberration mm. from the country that we're proud to live in. Mm. <laughs> yeah, or, or in 11 months. I heard that. Um, <laughs> whether or not we're able to do that depends in large part on all of us, mm -hmm. on what we do, on the movements that we're part of, that we're building. But it also depends on local government, on, on people like me, on grassroots organizations like the Young Women's Freedom Center, um, on holding elected officials accountable. And when we see the kind of corruption that's alleged in the recent federal indictment mm -hmm. right, um, here in San Francisco, when we see those kinds of allegations, it undermines at the local level, at the, at the level that's most directly involved in governance and in daily activity for, for people who vote and pay taxes and go about their lives in our community, faith in democracy. Mm -hmm. And we have enough challenges to our faith in democracy at the federal level right now. We don't need that at the local level. Mm -hmm. And so if I do nothing else over the course of the next four years but help San Franciscan voters feel a little more confident mm -hmm. in the integrity of our local government, that'll be an accomplishment. Does that include policing? It does. And let, and let, me, let me talk as a transition to the police accountability issue about one of the challenges we have, because this is true mm -hmm. for the government corruption and it's true for policing. Mm -hmm. Our office, the district attorney's office, we talked about what do we do and what do we not do? Uh -huh. We are not set up to be an investigating agency. The police do the vast majority of investigations for us. Mm -hmm. The cases that we, we, we take the police investigation, sometimes we do a little follow-up, we go to court, and we make a case. That's how we're set up. So when it comes to 
complex white collar investigations that involve wiretaps for a year when it comes to um, enforcing laws that the police themselves violate. There are real challenges from a resource standpoint, from an infrastructure standpoint, from a culture standpoint. Uh, and those are challenges that I am confronting every day and trying to, to make changes to address. Mm-hmm. They're not going to go away overnight. Um, so I'll give you some examples. Um, until very recently, when there was an officer involved shooting in San Francisco, the police themselves were the lead investigating agency. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, people are laughing because there's uh, there's an obvious conflict of interest. But the step which which my predecessor took, which was an important step of establishing an independent investigation bureau that does those investigations, is not a magic wand solution, right? Because we still have police being the first to respond to the scene. We still have police almost always doing their own investigation into potential criminal charges against the person who was shot. Mm-hmm. Um, we always have ac- you know, some challenges about getting access in a timely manner to the information we need mm-hmm. um, on scene. And then afterwards, getting cooperation. The main witnesses that lawyers in my office call in criminal cases are police officers. The overwhelming majority of cases in a preliminary hearing, <clears throat> the only witness called is a sworn San Francisco Police Department officer. Mm-hmm. And so for us to take a different category of case where we're investigating those police officers, whether it be for perjury or for a shooting or for whatever it might be. We need to find witnesses. Mm -hmm. We need to have people who are going to come forward and testify. We can use the police body-worn camera, but if they're the defendant in a case, they have the right to remain silent. Every defendant does. Every defendant has the right to remain silent if they're accused of a crime. And so there are real bureaucratic, <clears throat> logistical, and cultural challenges that all the political will in the world can't solve overnight. Mm-hmm. But I'm working on it. I'm working hard on it. Okay. We're going to hold you to that. Please do. All right. One more question, and then I want to hear about your vision for uh, the world, your 60-second oh. idea to change the world. Um, you – Okay. So y'all will notice that I didn't go into all the questions about your parents, your background. And to be honest, if you were to read uh, the top Google pages for you, um, I would assume that you were uh, trying to make San Francisco a socialist county. I'm guessing there's not a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters in the room. We only heard like two people clap right there. But Oh, okay. All right. But all rhetoric aside, um, what is real is that there are a lot of barriers um, that will try and prevent you from implementing this vision. Tell our audience what kind of support and what kind of feedback you need to implement the kinds of changes that can make San Francisco great again. The... (laughs) Yeah, how do I follow that? I don't even know. <laughs> the the changes we're making, right? Let's let's take bail reform, right? Or let's take expanding a mental health diversion or creating diversion for primary caregiver parents. Those kinds of changes are made controversial by reactionary forces in the media and in the law enforcement community that are deeply committed to the status quo, mm-hmm. that fear change. They will be sure to publicize on the front page of newspapers, sensational stories about anything that goes wrong over the next four years. We end money bail. And if someone gets released from custody and commits a serious crime, it will be national news. Those mistakes, those tragedies will be few and far between. Mm -hmm. What will happen every single day, but never make the news, are the small successes. The young woman who's arrested but able to go back to her family because we don't put money bail she can't afford on her arrest. The young man who's in crisis but treated with clinics instead of cages. The neighbors who resolve their dispute through restorative justice interventions instead of police interventions. Those successes, they'll happen every day, but they'll be small and transformative. Pay attention 
to those changes. Be your own voice for broadcasting those successes far and wide. We need to tell those stories. We need to remember that just because it's not on the front page of the Chronicle doesn't mean it didn't happen Mm. and doesn't mean it's not important and doesn't mean it's not transformative in our criminal justice system. That's shame. So it's a tradition here at Inforum to ask every speaker the following question. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? No, no, right? Clock ticking. Um, I'm focused on criminal justice, and I think that, you know, in this country, we sadly, you know, we, we live in a country where our culture is largely defined by crime and punishment. The majority of Americans, like me, have an immediate family member who is currently or formerly incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And so we talked about this earlier, but my idea, my idea is that we start investing as much in prevention and healing for victims Mm -hmm. as we do in punishment. Mm. If we simply have parity around the prevention and healing, investment in healing the harm and making sure people who are vulnerable and whatever you want to say, at risk, whatever that means, have the supports they need so they don't end up committing crimes, put as much on that side of the budget as you put into the prisons and the jails and into the the militarization of police departments. Mm -hmm. We will live in a much safer, more humane society and world. That, yes. So let's give a big round of applause to San Francisco District Attorney Chessa Boudin for joining us here tonight at Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Alicia Garza. Have a wonderful night. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.